What's up, skeptics? Welcome to another episode of Reason to Doubt, your source for all things skeptical. A couple weeks ago, Cameron with Capturing Christianity interviewed Guy Powell about the Shroud of Turin, uh, everyone's favorite tablecloth. And no less than four people sent me a message with a video like that same day saying I had to respond to it. So I guess I'm the Shroud of Turin guy now. No point fighting it. Fighting it. Maybe he'll just lean into it. If you are unfamiliar with the Shroud of Turin, we have an entire playlist where we break down claims about this particular holy relic. You can find a link to that in the description. Very briefly, it's a linen cloth with a faint brownish image of a man, has front of the man and back of the man. Uh, some people believe that this is the burial cloth of Jesus Christ, and they further, some of them believe that the image was imprinted during a divine resurrection. So Cameron had a shroud expert on, self-described shroud expert on his show to describe a book he's writing about shroud history. So that's where we're going to respond to. You're going to want to stay tuned all the way to the end because towards the end, I talk about a challenge I'm issuing to shroud researchers. I have a experiment proposal that I'd like them to consider that I think could settle some serious questions about the shroud of Turin. It could do it cheaply and it could do it non-destructively. So Stay tuned, or I guess you could just skip to then. Whatever, you know, you know what to do. It's YouTube. And right away, we're going to kick off that video with the, what I think is the most important part, the most important piece of information you get out of the entire thing. Be, be, uh, I was just now made aware of the fact that there are what, what are they called? Shroudies? People who are just uh, <clears throat> sort of interested, have a, have a really deep interest <laughs> in the shroud. Is that yeah, what you consider yourself or... a shroudy? I, I would uh, probably consider myself a shroudy, although I call it really a shroud authenticist. I've been unsure of what to call people who thought the Shroud of Turin was authentic uh, forever. I haven't uh, found a quippy, easy label for them. So you heard it here first. Shroudy it is. They're going to be shroudies forever. Um, in your book, I think what you try to do is you try to tell like a, a plausible account of how the Shroud might have got all the way from... Jesus's empty tomb in 33 AD all the way to Turin in 2023 AD. So how much of your story, as you say, is sort of based in in fact or historical fact as close as we can get to historical fact? And how much of it did you have to sort of use? How much did you have to fill in the gaps, so to speak? What I did was I didn't write it as a as a history. I didn't say, you know, at 9 a.m. this happened and 10 a.m. that mm -hmm. happened, 11 a.m. that happened. What I did was I added fictional characters amongst some real characters. And I, and I made a story out of it so that I put then the reader back into that time so that he can sit by the campfire, talk about the ships that are sitting in the in the uh, you know in in the bay they're about to invade what they're getting ready for and feel then the emotion and and what's actually going on at that time. So most of what I'm going to be talking about in this video has nothing to do with a book that Powell was trying to promote on this show, but I figured I may as well just go ahead and address that topic right up front and then we can move on past it. From the interview, it sounds like Powell is writing a book that's a history of the Shroud of Turin, but not necessarily the history, a sort of historical novel told through the eyes of both fictional and historical characters. He said that he tried to um, make what he thinks is like a plausible history one way it could have happened. But obviously, there's all kinds of holes in this story, as there's going to be for anything in history. And so he filled in these details, uh, the sort of things we don't know or couldn't possibly know. And he had the intent of creating like a compelling narrative, a, a thrilling story. This might be a hot take, but I think this is actually a good way to get people interested in history. 
humans love stories. I remember reading fictionalized accounts of historical figures when I was a kid. And even as an adult, I love games set in historical periods. Like there's a great game that's basically like Roman XCOM where you effectively play a Caesar and work through his conquests and stuff like that. So I love games that weave history into their narrative. And I think it's Perfectly fine. My only reservation with a book like this is that there's the risk that readers could come away with the feeling that there's more history here than there actually is. They might think that the story is factual, or at least is incorporating more fact than it might be. Now, to his credit, Powell says repeatedly in this interview, and presumably, I haven't read the book, but I presume he makes it clear in the book that this is not all set in stone. This is only a possible history of the Shroud. He, Powell is not trying to pull the wool over anyone's eyes. He's very open about having filled in details and gone beyond the data in order to give like the flavor of a story. But given the shaky and tenuous nature of any history of the Shroud prior to the 14th century, when the Shroud shows up in France, to the extent that there is even a history of the Shroud prior to that point, I suspect this book might end up misinforming more people than it informs. But all that said, I haven't read the book. Sounds like it could be a fun read, if nothing else. But that's the book. Now let's go on to what he talks about with the Shroud of Turin itself. The Shroud of Turin is really what is believed to be the, by Shroud Authenticists, it's believed to be the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ. Powell is careful throughout this interview to do what he just did there, to clarify things that would only be accepted by Shroudies, and I appreciate that. The Shroud is believed to be by Shroudies or by Shroud Authenticists to be the authentic burial cloth of Jesus Christ. This is very much contrary to the last guy I reviewed on this channel on Alan Parr's show, who is making broad, sweeping statements about what historians believe when, in fact, historians believe nothing of the sort, right? So I appreciate Pal's uh, care when he's talking. This carbon dating uh, the range, I think, of the dates, they, they sent it to, what is it, three different labs and the range of dates that they came up with. Uh, remind me mm -hmm. of the actual dates, but I think it was, I think sure. it was actually a pretty, pretty large period. It was what, roughly 200 years yeah. or something like that. But it, it was, was back uh, in the Middle Ages. Came up with a range, which was uh, 1260 to 1390. But it turns out that the statistics that the labs used has been debunked. They did not do the statistics right on all of the samples. And so it's pretty certain nowadays, at least in the shroud world, that the radiocarbon testing was done in well was done incorrectly and or led to these uh, incorrect results of the uh, the twelve sixty to thirteen ninety time frame has been the statistics that they did on those samples has been totally wrong, and that in and of itself is kind of disproves the the twelve sixty to thirteen ninety date that they came up with. Right. So there were flaws in the carbon dating, statistical flaws specifically, and that completely debunks the whole thing. And this is one of those things that is kind of correct, maybe technically correct, but is misleading. So the carbon dating that he's referring to was performed on the Shroud of Turin in 1988. Uh, the paper was published in 89. We talk about this in episode one of our Shroud series, if you want to see the details. In brief, a sample was cut from the bottom corner of the shroud. The samples were sent to three different labs, one in Oxford, one in Zurich, and one in Arizona. Now, that right there is not ideal. It's great that they had three different labs, but it would have been better had they taken samples from all over the cloth, which Powell mentions. Uh, that would uh, reduce the possibility of having samples that don't represent the cloth as, it's, as a whole. You might get a bad sample if you just take it from one spot. It's possible, at least. Now, that was the original plan but researchers were not permitted to do that. If you plot the results that you got from those three labs, you'll notice that they are very close to each other, 
but that Oxford is a bit earlier than the other two. Now, some variation between the three labs would be expected. You're never going to have them agree perfectly. But analysis by Riani et al. and others since have shown that the results between the three labs were heterogeneous as opposed to homogeneous. And that basically means that there's more than your usual error between the labs, such that combining them uh, in the way that the 1989 paper did, just mashing the three together, doing some transformations to get that single date range, that is not appropriate because there's something going on between the different labs. There, there's some kind of uh, violated assumption that there's something going on that's wrong, okay? So what does this actually mean in practice? It means that the carbon dating is flawed. And because of those flaws, we can't use the carbon dating to say with confidence that the shroud was made in 1260 versus 1390 or where in that range it was. It, though the shroud unequivocally enters history in 1354, so like that right side of the, of the graph, probably not right, you know. Uh, what does it not do, though? What it doesn't do is it doesn't mean that the, shroud, or the carbon dating of the shroud tells us nothing. Right? It's not worthless. You can't just throw it away because what radiocarbon dating is, it's a measurement of the radioactive carbon, the C14 content in the shroud. And again, explain all this in episode one. So check that for a more thorough explanation. Basically, you just burn the cloth, measure the ratio of C14 to C12, and you can use that to determine how old something is. Well, that C14 didn't just come from nowhere, right? There's uh, more C14 there than you would expect if it were first century. So you, regardless of the issues between the labs, and they were small and possibly due to uh, contamination that was better cleaned up by Oxford, regardless of all that, the radioactive carbon, all of that extra carbon, and it's not a little bit, that is a lot, that is 1,400 years worth of carbon, that came from somewhere. You can't just ignore it, right? This is something that Shroudy's seem to both acknowledge and also ignore. So like they say that the carbon dating is useless, that it's been debunked, that sort of thing. But then they immediately launch into alternative explanations of how the C14 got there because you you have to, right? You, you can't just ignore it if you want to incorporate all the data. So now we're going to go into Pal's explanation of some of those, how this extra carbon 14 got there. Or take the, the sample that they actually took was taken from the corners and the corners could have had some damage to them and then had damage uh, repaired, say, in around that time period or close to that time period. And so the sample that they did is I think what they have to do is they actually have to destroy the sample that they take in order to get the carbon dating. And so what they do is they, they sort of take the average of, of all the particles that that they get from destroying yep. it. And so you, you don't like, it's not as if they're testing like this thread versus this thread. What they're doing is they're taking that entire sample. So even if like two threads would have been in, interwoven in there and one of them could have been from the time, you know, first century Jerusalem, um, when you're mixing that with something that was later on, then you're going to get some some mixed results there. So, so the idea that Cameron alludes to here is called the invisible reweave hypothesis. When he talks about how there's different threads and maybe some were interwoven, the idea here is that the portion that they dated with radiocarbon dating, that is not representative of the entire shroud because at some point in the shroud's history, that fabric was repaired with younger fabric. So the entire shroud is first century. At some point, perhaps in the 16th century, a patch was applied. So if you date it, you'd get 
uh, carbon from the patch. You'd also get carbon from the first century. Remember that in carbon-14 dating, you're measuring that ratio between C14 and C12. Uh, you could, if you dated if you dated something that was from the 14th century, it would give you 14th century dates, right? But if it was some mixture of something with more C14, so younger, and less C14, first century, younger, and you kind of mix those together, you'd get a date in the middle. So you can think of it this way. Young material has uh, more C14 because it has been decaying for less time. Old material has less C14 because it has been decaying for longer. If you have more combined with less, you get a medium amount, right? And so the idea is that this invisible patch is doing just this. They have new material added to old material. You mix them together and you get that 1260-ish date uh, that was reported in 1989. Okay. So we can do some math to figure out uh, how much would need to be patch material versus original material. And as a bonus, this also works for any other contamination-related explanation, whether the extra carbon comes from finger oils or from smoke or from a patch or whatever. You can do some math to determine if the patch was applied X date, how much or contamination or whatever, how much of the material they tested would need to be patch or contamination. I'm just going to say patch, but it could also be contamination or whatever. How much of it would need to be a patch versus how much of it would be original? And I put up, did that math for you. The numbers are in the description if you want to go to the spreadsheet there where I generated this graph. But here's the graph. So as you can see, it dates to 1260. If 100% of the material is 1260, that's the date, right? And as you go further to the right, as you get your patch material gets younger, you need less of it. One date that is often thrown out there is the 1532 fire. If damage or smoke was deposited or it'd be patched because of that, 80% of the carbon in the sample would need to be from the patch. The, the shroud in the area would need to be almost completely destroyed in order for the ratios to work, right? This is not a small little bit that they're mixing in, right? This is a huge amount of of carbon that's newer than the first century that would be needed to explain the observations we have. But it gets worse than that because the samples were arranged vertically. As you can see here, you have Arizona, then Zurich, then Oxford. But if you remember the order, Oxford material dated older, and that means that there's more original material in this hypothetical scenario. Therefore, it needed less patch material. And so that means as it got closer to the center, the shroud is getting more worn out if this patch hypothesis is correct. And that's the opposite of the kind of damage pattern you'd expect from what Cameron just said, like holding it and, and touching it. You'd expect as it got further to the edge, it would be more damaged. Now, the difference in uh, location between the, the topmost sample and the bottommost would only be about 10%. So yeah, maybe, maybe it's not a death note of the idea, but it is definitely contrary to what one would expect. Also note that I understand there are calibration curves that go into radiocarbon dating to get precise dates. I'm ignoring that for my rough estimates for the purposes of this presentation. Uh, it gets pretty close. It's not perfect. It's fine. If you don't understand what a calibration curve is, don't worry about it. That was just to head off some well actuallys in the comments. Things is that, um, and also I, th I think people have even talked about like that's where people hold it. So yep. like when you're yep. holding yep. the shroud up, uh, you know, for far. To, to, to present it, that's where you're going to hold it is in the corners and, and your finger oils are going to rub off into it. And so that can also contaminate the, 
the threads and everything. And so there, there's all sorts of. So th- again, that's just true as far as it goes. We just talked about this. They would need 80% of the carbon would need to be finger oils. Like 80% would need to come from finger oils or dirt or whatever. That is just completely unrealistic. That is not going to have avoided scrutiny because it's not like they just close their eyes and, you know, randomly picked a spot and just cut it without looking at it. It was examined to make sure it was suitable, right? Moreover, there are cleaning procedures done to remove exactly that kind of contamination. Now, granted, those procedures aren't perfect. There were differences in procedures between Oxford and the other two, but we're not taught like, like, this is not the kind of thing that would miss 80%, okay? So nat- normal contamination does not explain this kind of discrepancy. It doesn't explain why it dates in the 14th century. The patch would have to be almost entirely, but not completely patch, and would have to be consistent throughout the whole thing. It it just doesn't really seem to drive. It, it seems like a stretch. One of the, the reasons why I think I'm still skeptical of the Shroud is because that date that they came up with seems to coincide with the time when we have the most robust history Mm -hmm. of the Shroud beginning. Yes, yes. Thank you, Cameron. Thank you. Yes. This is a huge coincidence that I think is underappreciated by Shroudies. Not only would there need to be a patch or contamination or whatever mechanism you want to invoke to change the radiocarbon dating. So it should be date first century, but because of whatever device you want to invoke, it actually dates to 14th century, even though it's really first century. So not only does that have to happen, but it also has to happen just so such that it lines up with when the shroud shows up in history. The shroud shows up in France in the 14th century and the shroud dates to just before the 14th century. Seems like a huge coincidence, right? And again, with a patch, there's no reason for it to have degraded precisely to the 20% of original fabric it would need. It could have been 40% or 50% or 60%. Had it been 50%, for example, the shroud would have dated to the year 800. It could have easily been different, but it wasn't. So it seems like a big coincidence, a big ask that there had to be some kind of undetectable mechanism that made that altered the makeup of the shroud in just the right way so when we dated it it would show up in history at the same time it was dated for that's a lot to swallow and i don't think any of the arguments that cameron or pal present here or i've heard elsewhere is enough to overcome that and there are quite a few historical references to something that may have been the shroud Um, there's even something that goes all the way back to one of the letters of Paul to the Galatians, uh, Galatians 3.1, where he says, uh, you know, you foolish Galatians, you have seen an image of the resurrected Christ. Mm, That seems a little tenuous, but let's look at the Bible. Let's look at what he's talking about. Remember the Bible, the letter from Paul to the Galatians, not written in English, it was written in Greek. So let's compare a couple translations. The NRSV says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly exhibited as crucified. Okay. The NIV says, you foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? Before your very eyes, Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed as crucified. Now, I'm not sure what translation Powell was citing. Neither of those fit with his. Uh, but again, what really matters here is the Greek. It's not what English translation that can give you the kind of the flavor, what the translators thought, but the Greek is what uh, matters. Unfortunately, I don't know Greek. I don't speak it. I don't read it. But the biblical scholarship on this issue that I saw, uh, they seem to argue that either Paul was uh, speaking metaphorically, where he was the 
having seen Christ crucified is kind of uh, uh, Paul's vivid rhetorical style is painting a picture for them, or that it's an allusion to textual proclamations of Christ's uh, crucifixion. I don't know that many people who are not dedicated Shroud researchers are trying to argue that this is a reference to the Shroud of Turin. It's it seems like a pretty it seems like a stretch. The the further you go back in time, the harder it is to determine what is historical fact versus maybe fact versus total fiction. And uh, there's all kinds of politics that goes back. So it could be that I write a letter that says, I just saw the Shroud of Turin, blah, 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 blah. And it could be I'm saying that because I want people to think, you know, more highly of me. They want me to be you know, they, I want to be profiled and become more prominent because I say I saw this, when in reality, it may be totally fake. Now, this is an excellent point by Powell, and it's something that I think is often underappreciated by a lot of people, even perhaps sometimes by myself, that just because we read something in history doesn't mean that that is exactly how it happened. Anyone writing uh, an account or a book, they always have an agenda. There's, there's always some kind of goal they are trying to accomplish, and we have to keep that in mind when reading it, and we may not know what that goal was, particularly if we only have the one account of, of an event. It can be hard to determine how uh, the source's biases might be influencing what we're reading. History is always going to be fuzzy, particularly as we go back uh, centuries, millennia past you know, the printing press and things like that, and historians are never going to have the sources that they would like to have. Right. Turns out it's actually really hard to say what happened a long time ago, which is why people dedicate their entire lives to figuring it out. Doesn't mean that we can't have some good idea of what happened, but just have some caution when you're trying to say what definitely happened in history. Now, where I think this really plays in in this particular situation, however, is when someone wants to say that because of this account or that person's testimony, then we can be certain that a miracle happened in the past, like the resurrection, for example. But this kind of sword cuts both ways. It is difficult to tell what happened in the distant past. And when it comes to miracles, there are always going to be alternative explanations. For something that's just testimony, and that's what somebody writing down is, it's just testimony, there are always going to be alternative explanations that someone was mistaken, someone was lying or misinformed or whatever that are more plausible than that physics was suspended and there's a miracle and a supernatural layer to reality or whatever. For more on this, check out the debate I just did with Dale from Real Seekers where he actually ended up agreeing on this point. So it's great. Great conversation. Highly recommend it. The gospel narratives, if you read those, then it's, it's very compressed and, and they kind of had to do that, right? They they had to, they only had so much space to, to write everything that they wanted to write. So they had to compress a lot of detail. And Did they though? Did, did they have to compress it down for space? I mean, I guess at that point, everything that was written had to be like written by hand. And if you were going to make a copy, you had to sit down and like make a copy. And that would naturally, I would think, encourage brevity. But all kinds of ancient authors write volume after volume, like mighty tomes of, of stuff. So I don't think it's necessarily the case that they had to compress their story. It, it sounds like they wanted to. They, they chose to, which is a legitimate thing for them to do. And maybe they had great reasons for doing it. But I don't think it's the case like, oh, well, we could only afford 10 pages, so the gospel's got to fit in 10 pages. Sorry, guys. Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's like that. <laughs> Still don't know. Still to this day, don't know how the shroud image was produced. That Like every 
every single method of producing the image on the cloth that we know of today was not available back during those times, you know, in the 1200s or 1300s when this thing was purportedly uh, made or created, you know? And so even if it goes further back than that, and even today, like we don't know how to make this, this, this thing, like we can't with our tools today still can't make the image on the shroud. And yep. that alone, like apart from the carbon dating, that alone is just like, what, how, what we have this thing and we just don't like, it's the most fascinating, one of the most fascinating archaeological discoveries or, or artifacts that exists. And, and it's just mesmerizing when, when you start to, to learn more about this thing. And then you come across the carbon dating, but then there's questions about the carbon dating. And then it's just, it's really fascinating stuff. Cameron doesn't say that not knowing how to make the image proves it's authentic, but man, did he sound like he was about to. He really wanted to. He does, though, contrast not knowing how the image was made against the carbon dating. Right. And this point, you don't know how it's made, is possibly the single most common point that I hear Shroudies say in our comments and other places. You don't know how it's made. Therefore, it was God. Right. I'd wager, in fact, I'd wager money right now in the comments right now. If this video has been up for more than a couple hours, somebody is making that point. So, okay. I expect this point. But then later, Cameron says this to say that the, cl that the cloth. The shroud is is authentic is not to say that you know exactly how the image was created right so you can still yep. have open questions about like was it radiation was it something else was it some kind of like supernatural miracle how we don't know exactly how this was created but if you think that it's authentic all that you're saying is that this is the authentic burial cloth of jesus and you can be completely agnostic as to how the the image was actually created and well which is it cameron is not knowing damning evidence for authenticity. And like, if we don't know, like that's the be all end all, or, or like, does it not matter at all if we don't know how it's made? Like, like pick a lane, you can't have it both ways. In fact, the answer is that not knowing how it's made tells us we don't know how it was made. And that's it. I don't know means I don't know. It does not go, I don't know. Therefore, I do know. And it was a miracle. Now, if we knew the, the mechanisms or a mechanism that would be necessary and it violated thermodynamics or required exotic physics, then I think you could have a good case for a miracle, right? But if it's just, I don't know, we can't do testing, so we can't figure it out, that's not persuasive. Some of those scientists that spent five full days, 120 hours, studying the shroud uh, were not able to determine how that image was, uh, was imprinted or however it got there onto the onto the shroud. They keep repeating this, and I say they shroudies keep repeating this like it's a super long time. Oh, five whole days. Five days is not a long time. That's one work week, you guys. One week. How much do you get done in a single week? And it, this is especially uh, salient considering that was how long they had to gather data. They had to go in with a plan, execute the plan, and then leave. And they haven't been able to go back to answer new questions and any analysis, no matter how well designed, is always going to raise new questions that requires more analysis. And this was the first thorough analysis the Shroud was subjected to, the only one to date. So this is not the flex that Shroudies think it is. It's great that they got that week, but that it's not like, oh, they got a week and they couldn't figure it out. Guess it can't be figured out. It's amazing that they didn't figure it out. The fact that they didn't figure it out means that it was uh, a miracle because they had weapon scientists. <laughs> Yeah, this is not the flex that uh, it may at first appear. And also, in addition to that, there's blood 
on, on that's like authentic human blood that's that's on the shroud. And so if this were a fake, then someone had to have like put blood all over themselves in in just the right spots or either cut themselves or or put blood in those spots. like it's it's just a, a really fascinating fascinating piece of of history. Cameron, my dude. Blood's not exactly hard to find. Literally, every human being on Earth has a, a supply of blood inside them at all times. Like, we've all got blood right now. The blood is coming from inside the house, Cameron. Moreover, you know what's super popular in the Middle Ages? Bloodletting. People are bleeding all over the place. Getting blood would not have been that difficult, human blood in particular, in the Middle Ages. Okay, so the fact that it had blood on it doesn't tell us a whole lot. I need to put 3D uh, properties to that image. Three dimensions, I can't imagine if they were even uh, understood at that time, let alone uh, being something that an artist or some kind of a, a painter or whatever could have worked with. Does Kyle think that medieval people didn't understand that things have length and width and height? Like, how do they build castles and cathedrals? Like, sculptures. Like, no artists in the Middle Ages understood that that three-dimensional objects exist. How do they sculpt things? Do they just happen to stumble on the fact that they had three dimensions? Like, what 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 is going on here? Like, I guess that's why everyone was so jazzed about Michelangelo's sculptures. No one had ever thought to work in three dimensions before. <laughs> Look, it is remarkable that the, uh, the shroud is made in such a way that the image, you can infer three-dimensional information from it because when the cloth is resting on someone's face or whatever, the closer the cloth would be, the denser the coloring is. And so from that, you can infer distance, right? That's what that's the 3D property they're talking about. It's something that would have to be explained in any sort of hypothesis for how the image was formed, certainly. It is not this magical property that is completely unheard of by human humans like the idea that you can convey depth in an image i don't think is beyond the pale for a human to figure out uh one of the things that is certain about the image uh, well that is believed to be certain about the image is that the image was created by some kind of a radiation going positive and negative uh or uh, going straight up and straight down and um, if that's the case, then one of the things that comes out of that is the distance that the cloth was from the skin determines then the brightness or darkness of the image. All right. That is not certain by any means. It may be believed to be certain by shroudies, but it's not certain. Radiation as an explanation, though, is arguably the most popular explanation among shroudies for how the image was formed. Now, they, he just threw this out like, oh, it was just radiation going up and down. That is not how radiation acts. Radiation doesn't just go straight up and down unless like human beings have done something or like there's some kind of special situation going on. Typically, when something decays, it is isotropic. The atom spits out a whatever it's going to spit out in a random direction. And so if you get a bunch of atoms doing it, it's just going to go equally in all directions. That's how radiation behaves. Now, if the shroud was formed if the image was formed by radiation the radiation did not behave that way because if it had it would have been distorted like if the cloth would have been all over the face you would have got image all over so when you folded it flat it would look all weird and you know you'd have his like sides peeled off right so clearly that's not what happened now 
if God is the explanation behind this radiation, if it's magic radiation, I mean, sure, God can make the radiation do whatever he wants. So it's not like that's disqualifying, but it is an extra piece you need to add. This isn't just radiation. This is magically collimated, magically sorted radiation. So it only goes in a special direction. It has to be God directed in order for it to work. So it would also have to be finely tuned in another way, too, because in order to get that 3D encoding, the radiation has to travel the distance from the body where it's being emitted in whatever mechanism. They never provide an actual mechanism. It's just don't worry about that. Some kind of mechanism leads to radiation. Don't worry. So whatever mechanism is spits radiation out. That radiation, those particles, whether it's an electron like a beta particle or a proton, or whatever is being spit out, it's going to be attenuated. It's going to be absorbed by the air to some extent. The more energetics radiation is, the further it could make in the air. But the further it could make it in any medium to include the shroud itself. But remember, the image on the shroud is very, very thinly applied. Only the, the top one to three, I think, fibers on the outside are discolored. And so it has to make it through the air, but then be stopped right at the beginning. It can't be too much radiation because it would burn all the way through. So like this is this is a very narrow window of radiation of energy levels and types that you could have in order to produce hypothetically produce this image. The exact mechanism of of like what kind of radiation with what energy levels uh, interacting with this cloth, that's also not something that is understood or proposed. Uh, concretely by shroudies. So it's just like they hit, it, uh, it's radiation. Radiation just colored it. Don't worry about it. It's, it's radiation. But like, okay, it was radiation. What what kind? What energy level? What type? Interacting with linen. Like, okay, maybe a miracle was the source of the radiation. But presumably, once you've got radiation, it just acts like radiation, at least when it gets to the cloth. And that means in principle, they should be able to do tests with different kinds of radiation without needing to touch the shroud at all, right? So at some point, I need to do a deep dive on the radiation hypothesis for image formation on the shroud. Let me know in the comments if that's something you'd be interested in, and I will bump it up in priority accordingly. But suffice it to say, it is not as cut and dried as Powell makes it seem. All right, from Samuel, it seems trivially easy to redo the carbon dating. Why has this not been done? Uh, agreed. It is trivially easy to uh, to redo the carbon dating if you have access to the cloth and if you are permitted to do a destructive test. Uh, carbon dating is destructive. You have to cut a piece out and that piece is gone forever. And, yeah. um, and unfortunately, that's, that's, uh, the, that's the way the carbon dating is done. And, and uh, we're actually hoping, one of, there's one theory that says that if you take the carbon dating from around the, the head, the image where the head is, that it will actually date to the future. Ah, we meet again, Bob Rucker. If you've been following my engagements on the Shadow Terran, you'll know that my nemesis, my bizarro reflection, is nuclear engineer Bob Rucker, who is a diehard Shroudy, and he has a super fancy model to explain away the radiocarbon dating. So the radiation image formation thing, that's like one whole class of explanations. And Bob's got his model that proves uh, not only how the image was formed, but also explains away the inconvenient C14 date. So in brief, he proposes that Jesus' body disintegrated. Don't worry about where the energy went. Hey, not important. 
some of the atoms, how much? Exactly the amount we need. Don't worry about it. Some of the atoms emitted neutrons and protons. And again, special up and down, neutrons and protons. The protons went to make the image formation, presumably, but more importantly are the neutrons. So the neutrons are blasting through the shroud, which is made of linen. This linen has trace amounts of nitrogen-14 in the cloth. And when you throw a bunch of neutrons at nitrogen-14, some of them are going to absorb those neutrons and turn into carbon-14. This is the same sort of uh, mechanism that makes carbon-14 in the atmosphere. Since radiocarbon dating works, remember again, by measuring that ratio from carbon-14 to carbon-12, if you add a bunch of carbon-14 to it, then the thing you dated will appear to be younger than it actually is. So in this way, you could take a cloth that's first century, bombard it with a bunch of neutrons, and have a date to, perhaps, the 14th century. Now, Bob uses uh, MCNP, which is a computer program used commonly in the nuclear in industry. It's an extremely robust and well-tested program. And he used it to develop the, a prediction for how the neutrons would behave, like if you irradiated enough in order to get that 1260 date at the foot of the shroud, what would the uh, C14 content be elsewhere in the shroud? And he predicts that if you were to take a test from, it's actually the center mass, not the head, like Pal said there. Uh, but if you take, well, I guess the head would also date the future probably. But the, the big headline one that that Bob talks about is center mass, where most of the neutrons would be. If you took a date, a chunk right at the center, Bob predicts that that would date to 8,500 CE, about 6,500 years into the future. So, hey, this is cool. He's got a hypothesis. He's got a model. He's got fancy graphs and everything. Uh, the one thing he doesn't have is evidence, unfortunately. To support this, there is... I cannot emphasize this enough. There is no evidence whatsoever to support this. Everything we have is an input to this model. The neutron, uh, the, the radiation that you would need, like what the program gives you is a curve, but you have to tell it a value along that curve, right? And so Bob said, hey, right here, here's the values I need for the radiocarbon dating because that's the data point we have. And then the, the model gives him the rest. He claims that it matches the curve that you have from bottom to top, but like that's barely a trend. I don't want to get into that. But again, I can do that in a whole other episode. The point is there's not evidence to support this. Certainly not enough to say it is guaranteed. However, one thing that Bob's model does have is concrete predictions. Unlike the vast and overwhelming majority of miracle claims, Bob's model makes clear, definite, and easily testable predictions. And I, so full marks for that. 100% that is a great thing. That's what you want a hypothesis to do. You want a, a hypothesis to be easily testable, okay, falsifiable, and this could definitely be falsified. Unfortunately, the Catholic Church as Cameron and Guy were talking about there, they don't want to do destructive testing on the shroud, so probably we're not going to do any more carbon-14 dating, at least at no point in the near future. So, guess we're out of luck. Or are we? What if I told you that it was possible to test Bob Rucker's hypothesis non-destructively, using only equipment you can buy off of Amazon? All you'll need is a Geiger counter and... And that's it, actually. That's all you'll need. Just a Geiger counter, <laughs> uh, like maybe 200 bucks if you want to get a really nice one. Maybe like some gloves probably and a mask. You don't like sneeze on it, but you've got those laying around from COVID. So yeah, 100, 200 bucks all in plus your ticket to Italy or whatever. Hey, that's cheap for some science, right? Now I've suggested this before, uh, but today I've done the math. I've done the math to show that this will actually work. 
The spreadsheet for all the math is in the description, so you can slowly go through what I'm about to go through, but here is how this testing would work. So we are going to test Bob Rucker's neutron absorption hypothesis. This is how we could test it non-destructively. So remember that Bob has hypothesized that neutron irradiation would have led to C14 production in the shroud. Okay, so there's extra radioactive carbon that is radioactive. So it is emitting radiation. It is decaying, right? And we can detect that decay using something like a Geiger counter. So now we need to know if we're going to detect it with a Geiger counter, how much radiation should we expect? We have to put in some characteristics about the shroud. It's about uh, 0.34 millimeters thick. Density is 25.7 milligrams per centimeter squared. The shroud is made of linen, which is primarily cellulose. For simplicity in these calculations, I'm just going to assume it's 100% cellulose. It's like 80%, but let's just go with 100%. Here's the chemical makeup of cellulose. It's got 12, um, or sorry, six carbon atoms, 10 hydrogen atoms, five oxygen atoms. If you do the math to figure out like the total mass from all of these, Carbon is 44% of the cellulose. So the shroud of Turin is about 44% by weight carbon. Uh, the So how much should it decay? How much would we expect if it were medieval versus first century versus whatever? Okay, so I'm going to do these measurements, assuming you're doing your detection for a, a centimeter square area, but you could change that if you wanted. Um, the mass of carbon, 11.42 milligrams from the 40%, 40% of that density is this. Uh, the atomic mass of carbon, here's the numbers. You get the number of atoms you have uh, in modern day. Uh, C14 is about one part per trillion of the carbon-12. So if you have E to the 20 atoms, you've, you've got E to the 8 carbon-14. The half-life of carbon-14 is 5,730 years. So you can do some other fancy math. And that gives you an activity of 12.59 becquerels. A becquerel is one decay per second. So in this centimeter squared area that we have on the shroud, if the cloth were made today, if it were modern cloth, we would expect 12 to 13 decays of carbon-14 every second, and each one of those uh, would result in a uh, emission of beta, right? So the max energy of carbon-14 is 156 kilo electron volts, and that's important because, remember, all of the atoms in the shroud are emitting this radiation. And so it, the beta particles, which are uh, electrons, they have to make it through the shroud itself in order to escape to be detected, and a lot of them are going to be decayed. I use the CRC Handbook of Radioactive nu Nuclides, 1969. This chart, which you can see on the screen, which told me that it's about 80% of the electrons would escape. Uh, now, you'd probably, I said you need a Geiger counter. Maybe you need two, one for the top and one bottom, because remember, radiation is isotropic, so it's going every direction. So, yeah, okay. But the important thing is that post absorption for modern cloth, you'd have two and a half becquerels. So in a minute, if you sat there holding it for a minute, you'd get 151 decays for modern cloth. If we do some transformations to figure out how much radioactive carbon would be there if it were medieval, which is the hypothesis we're testing, we should be detecting about 138 decays per minute after that's how many should escape the cloth. And if Bob is right, if there's a bunch of extra carbon-14, then we should get a bunch of extra decays. If there's more carbon-14, more of it is there to decay. How much more? 330 decays per minute. Roughly two and a half times. That is a big gulp. That, that is a big gap. Medieval shroud is this much. If Rucker's right, we should detect two and a half times that much. That is a, an amount of carbon-14 
decay that we could detect with like basic Walmart level equipment. This is something that we could do, right? Now, obviously my calculations here are rough. If I was gonna do this for real, we'd want to do things like apply calibration curves to get a better estimate of like exactly what we'd predict. I'd wanna use a more up-to-date and like careful source for self-absorption, get some good like experimental design to make sure we're capturing like all, like, yeah, there's more to, to this, but not a lot more. Like, and importantly, none of this would be destructive. You wouldn't have to damage a single thread on the Shroud of Turin in order to do this. We could settle this right here. Well, not here, we'd have to be in Turin. We could settle this right now though. So I happen to know that at least some Shroudy researchers watch this show. So if you are listening, Shroudies, let's make this happen. Heck, I'll even buy the Geiger counter as long as you promise that I can hold it so I can hear it go clicky clack. Actually, you know what? I will let Bob Rucker hold it as long as I can hug him while he does it like ghost style, you know, with the scene with the with the clay, right? Wait for me, wait for me. I'll be coming home. Wait for me. Seriously though, this would let us put this ridiculous hypothesis to rest and that benefits everybody right because shroud research could then focus and it would know okay neutron radiation that didn't happen right so that is no longer an explanation for the radiocarbon dating it is no longer an explanation for image formation so we can put that aside and focus our efforts and this would be like i don't know a weekend's worth of work or something like this is not this is not like once you did all the prep work it would not be that hard all we have to do is convince the Pope, right? So let's make it happen. Let's convince the Pope. Let's do it. So there were other things in the original video that I didn't touch on. The link is in the description if you want to see the whole thing, mostly with stuff like the Justinian coins, uh, the Shroud's alleged impact on iconography, other things that uh, they're fast to bring up, but addressing them takes a really long time. And I didn't want this episode to be like hours long. And some of them we haven't discussed on the channel at all. And I don't want to like bring them up for the first time kind of in passing and not give them the attention that they are they deserve. So let me know in the comments what Shroud-related material you want me to cover. If it's some claims that were in here that I didn't get to or other claims you've heard that you want me to talk about. Uh, I know you folks are like shroud turn fiends, always prowling YouTube for your next fix, you know? So you made it all the way to the end of the video, and that means you get a bias. Today's bias of the day is the ambiguity effect. So this is the human tendency to prefer what is known to what is unknown, or to not really give unknown options due weight or to overweight that uncertainty. So imagine that you are going to a restaurant or something, or you're picking a uh, class and you want to know the professor, whatever, it doesn't matter. You're picking something that has a rating is the important thing. And you have two options. One option has average, maybe even slightly below average ratings. The other one, but like not very many, the other one is kind of newer and doesn't have any ratings at all. Uh, it might be the inclination to avoid the unrated one like the plague because it doesn't have any ratings, but in fact, that not having a ratings only tells you that it's new and unrated. It doesn't tell you its quality. So people tend to, though, view that uncertainty in a negative light. Now, don't get me wrong. Uncertainty does propose risk, right? So when you're acting without information, you have to quantify the risk of that uncertainty, that it could be great, it could be bad. But people tend to focus on the it could be bad part and not give due weight and consideration to the it could be good part.
right? So when you're ta- making decisions or you're analyzing evidence or something, you need to not let ambiguity frighten you. You're always going to have unanswered questions. You're never going to have the information that you want. So we don't want to be too risk averse. The best you can do is just kind of quantify the uncertainty, assess the risk, maybe make some bounding conditions like, okay, if it's bad, what's what's the worst that's practical? If it's good, what's the best that's practical? Kind of assess, give it a weighting of those sort of things. You can do things in order to uh, make decisions in the absence of perfect information, right? And that's what we should do if we want to be good stewards of data. So that's our show. If you liked it, please do give us a like. If you didn't like us, let us know with your whole chest what you didn't like about us in the comments. We really appreciate it. Subscribe uh, to see more content in the future. We're very excited for what's coming up soon. I don't want to say too much here because we haven't recorded it yet, but we got some great stuff coming on. I'm very excited to tell you about. Uh, So subscribe to see that. But until next time, remember, you've always got reason to doubt.